0: It's great to have you here today. It is going to be daylight later tonight. That is good news. I don't care if you lost an hour of sleep. Daylight is better. Um, I was talking with uh, Kristen on our worship team this morning, and we were like, it's always interesting to see, like, it's always Sunday when we change time, but like, will people be late? Will people show up? And I've noticed over the years of pastoring that a lot of times people like show up early on the times where we actually spring forward because they're afraid of being late. Um, and before cell phones, um, it was complicated to know, like, how do I set my time? I had a, one of our friends this morning was like, oh, my, my clock didn't change over. I'm like, that's why they have cell phones. And so cell phones do all the hard work for you. not calling anybody out. All right. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, have, I have an announcement. I was trying to debate whether or not to give this to you today. We are going to share some announcements in a couple weeks about this, but I think it's important today. Um, As we approach Easter, um, we are changing the name of our church from Fellowship Church to Free Church. We'll be spending a lot of time discussing why that is, Um, but that will be on Easter, which is April the 17th. We've got this big free weekend that is coming up. A lot of work is going into that. And as a result, um, we're actually changing our service times um, completely here as a church, not just on Easter. And I think that's important for you to know today. Because a lot of times people will come to our morning service and, like, that's too crowded. Um, And so we want to make as much space for you as we can. And so starting Easter and continuing forward, um, we're going to have two morning services that will be at 9 and 11. So no longer 10 a.m., but 9 and 11 moving forward from Easter. And just so you know where we're at with kids, um, we will be doing a full kids program from three months to fifth grade um, at the 9 a.m. service. And then at the 11 a.m. service, we're gonna be doing three months to three years. And as we grow, and as we get more kids volunteers, and this is a plug, as we get more kids volunteers, we will be adding all of our classes um, for the 11 a.m. service as well. And so we feel this is the greatest way for us to grow and have space and room to do so, knowing that we need kids ministry to do that. And if you're asking like, well, what about our five o'clock service? Uh, We are going to keep our 5 o'clock service moving forward, but it's going to be a little different. Uh, It's not going to be here. So 5 o'clock service starting in May will be in downtown Salem. And we're going to be doing that once a month through the summer. And if that goes well, we will do every week starting in the month of October. And Casey, um, our associate pastor, he's looking for some places along with uh, Tim Warnock and myself for us to meet starting in the month of May. We have a really cool spot I think we're going to be meeting and for the summertime, as we start those downtown services, it's just going to be a worship night. And so if you come on Sunday morning, you can still come. You always can. But You can come on Sunday evening. It will just be worship and encouragement and celebration. But come October, it will be the same service we do in the morning. So for the next couple of weeks, what that means is we do 10 and 5 until Easter. And so here's what I need you to not do is don't bail on coming to the 5 o'clock service between now and Easter, because we need the space. And so I'd encourage you continue to come Sunday evenings at 5, but on Easter the times are changing to 9 and 11, and in May we're starting uh, 5 o'clock again downtown on the fourth Sunday of the month, every month, May, June, July, August, September, etc. cetera. So you guys understand? Time changes, 9, 11, and in May, 5 again in downtown Salem for worship nights, and in October, 9, 11, and 5 every single week. We'd love to grow. We'd love to reach more people for Christ, both here and other parts of our city Um, and across the country. uh, Some dear friends that moved to Florida a couple weeks ago, Tim and Chelsea Lesby, Casey and I have been talking to him. They want to start a a home church and focus on kids' ministry in Tampa, Florida. So if you feel called there like I do... um, that's going to be starting soon. And so, yet, yeah, unique times present unique opportunities to preach the gospel, and so be praying for the church as a whole. Uh, God is moving in unique ways post, pre, during COVID to actually push the gospel out more in very unique ways, and as people scatter, so does the gospel. And so, uh going to get into our message today. We are in a series called Exodus Journey. We're going through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, We're doing this over the course of about 10 months, taking some breaks along the way. And we are in a part of the Exodus journey called the mountain because everything we're discussing in this part of the series called the mountain uh, takes place at a mountain, Mount Sinai. Last week, I understand the message was pretty deep and complex and Bible study-ish, but it needed to be to set us up for where we are going And so just a quick recap and then an introduction to what we're talking about today. The the recap is, last week Israel arrived at Mount Sinai. This is the same mountain that God called Moses and that God establishes to the people there at Sinai that they will be his treasured possession among all people. That they will become a kingdom of priests, that they will become a holy nation, And God told them that the covenant given to Abraham um, would be passed down to them. That through this nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that would be fulfilled through the coming of Jesus Christ. So Israel consecrated themselves, made themselves holy before encountering the presence of God at Sinai. Because God is holy, we are not. And so they, they had to clean their clothes. They had to make sure that they were Clean and holy to prepare themselves to meet the Lord. And then God descended upon the mountain. God revealed himself through thunder and lightning and earthquakes and trumpets, terrifying, that's the scary part for me, smoke and fire. And a number of times Moses went up and down the mountain, and if you actually read through The rest of the book of Exodus, it's incredibly unclear how many times Moses goes up and down and who he's with every time. But Moses goes up and down the mountain several times, which brings us uh, to where we are today with Moses now probably at the base of the mountain or or just kind of up the mountain a little bit. uh, And and he's going to receive something that we all kind of know about whether we grew up in church or not. And so before we introduce that idea, here's a couple things I'd like to ask you to do. Could you guys... Take your cell phones out, silence them. You could just give the Lord your full attention today as we get into his word. And if you could limit your moving around and in and out, I I want you guys to get an important message today uh, about the Ten Commandments. So we're going to be talking about We're going to be talking about the law and why it is that God would give such laws to such a people and how they apply to us today. And to get into the Ten Commandments, I want to talk a little bit about rules. Some of you actually, strangely, enjoy following rules. Um, How many of you were the kid in school that the teacher forgot to give an assignment to? And you're the kid that actually raised their hand, like, teacher, you you didn't give us homework tonight. You idiot. (laughs) Put your hand down, keep your mouth closed, Nobody likes you. There's actually a there's a funny meme of, of this school in, in Africa where, where a kid does just that and these other kids just, like, tackle him and, like, put their, their hands over his mouth. Like, there's some people that are really all about rules. I'm not that guy. Um, if you go somewhere on vacation and if you're exploring something and something says, do not cross this line, that means that what is behind that line is one of the most important things you'll ever do. And so, you know, don't go over the fence means, what I interpret is, whatever you do, go over that fence. Don't don't go past this waterfall. Oh, this is exactly the waterfall that we need to go past. Uh, we took some of our interns on a retreat about a month and a half ago, and, and uh, Nathan Freshour and Caleb Oakleberry, there is this Sinclair gas station that was across the street in Sisters from the restaurant we ate at, and I'm like, we need to take a picture, sitting on this dinosaur. And Nathan was like, "Well, I don't think we're supposed to do that, and I think it's against the rules." I was like Nathan, you live only once, man. If you sit on the dinosaur, and if the police come, I'll pretend I don't know you. <laughs> don't be like Nathan. And I think I got to look at the, the picture, Nathan. I think he's just like sitting. He couldn't even get on. He's like standing actually, like just a little distance. Um, I was taking the picture, so I didn't get get on the dinosaur. So rules oftentimes have the opposite effects of what they're supposed to have. Don't touch means touch. You know, don't don't look ahead means look ahead as quick as you can. Um, Don't do this, don't do that. It means this is very pertinent information. And so... Here they are at the mountain, and God speaks so all of the nation, two million of them, could hear his voice. And in verse number 2 of chapter 20, he says, I am the Lord your God. Um, in, In Hebrew, he's saying, I am Yahweh, the name of the God of all creation, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed to us through Christ, through the prophets, through the apostles. He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and because of this, I need you to listen to what I'm about to say. Because I brought you to freedom, I need you to do what I ask you to do. That's why Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Look at all I've done for you, and because of what I've done for you, I would like you to do this to me and for me. And he is about to give to them what we call the Ten Commandments, uh, the the Decalogue, the Ten. And, And it's broken up into two parts. There are rules and commandments regarding our status and worship and relationship before God in order to love him. And then there are rules by which we love our neighbor. And the first part says this, verse number three, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8 through 11 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are ways that we honor God. In Deuteronomy 6, later on, God would tell Moses to tell the people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the most important commandment Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 22. The first of the Ten Commandments are our relationship to God. But we learn also in um, Leviticus 19 that not only are we to love God with all we have, we are also to love our neighbor as ourself. And so when someone asked Jesus what is the most important commandment, he said the first is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is this, even though they didn't ask for it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Will we find that out in the remaining commandments? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I often wondered, like if you don't honor your mom and dad why does that mean you might die earlier? It's because your mom and dad might kill you if you don't. You shall not murder. Scratch that. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So love God. Love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if we would do the first of these commandments, if we truly would have no other God before him, if we would not worship false graven images above him, if we would remember to keep his name reverent and holy, and if we would honor him by resting in him, these other laws in a perfect world would actually take care of themselves and that's how it was supposed to be in Eden. And so the people hear this. It's not just God and, and Moses, it's God speaking where two million people hear this booming voice. It says it sounds like thunder but they can hear it, they know his words and they're utterly terrified of the voice of God and they beg Moses to not have to listen to it anymore. And they're Like Moses, can you just talk to God one-on-one and when he tells you this stuff then you can bring it to us because we're just people and for whatever reason god chose you and if we listen to god's voice any longer we might die so moses went into this veil this this smoke this cloud if you will to interact with god on behalf of the people And God continues from Exodus 20 to Exodus 24, continuing to give the law to Moses. In particular, laws about worship, laws about justice, laws about human and property rights, laws about the environment, laws about labor and rest, and societal rules, to name a few. And while God is giving these things to Moses, Moses is writing all of these things down it doesn't say how long he's in the cloud, but he's writing these things down, and eventually he comes out of the cloud. He's like, I know you guys didn't want to listen to God. I listened. I wrote all the notes down. Here they are. I'm going to read them to you, and it actually records in verse or chapter 24. He reads them to the people twice, actually, once in the evening, once the following day. So he shares these laws with the people, and then he invites the elders and the leaders of Israel, along with Aaron and Joshua and Ur, um, to have a a meal, literally a meal with God. Now this is um, kind of precluding, it's pointing us to the Last Supper with Jesus and the apostles, but I didn't want to just kind of like skirt past this verse about dinner with God, because dinner with God is a big deal. Verse 24, verse 10 through 11, says the leaders of of Israel, along with Moses, listen to this, it says, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Um, Scholars believe that they didn't see the actual physical um, awe-inspiring glory of God lest they die, but this image of this this clear pavement sapphire like the clearness of sky that the feet of God rested on that somehow this is all the leaders of Israel saw because later on Moses himself would see the backside of God which is not even what these men saw that day but just imagine for a moment dinner with God and, and the only thing you can see of God is something you can't even describe it's like pavement it's like clear it's like sapphire. It's like his feet are on that, and, and we know that there is this veil between this realm and our realm that, that it can't even be understood. And they have dinner with God, and it says in verse 11, God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. I love this. It says, they beheld God and ate and drank. This, this is a strange day. If, if I'm sitting and eating this meal, I think I would be so focused on beholding God that I don't think I could eat or drink. But here they are eating and drinking just like, whoa, this is a big deal. So after the meal, God calls Moses back up to the mountain and he says, bring Joshua with you this time, your assistant. And I want you guys to wait six days in the veil, the cloud, in, in this cloud this thing that's separating my glory from you. Wait there in the cloud for six days, and on the seventh day, I'm going to call you up onto the mountain. Just you, Moses, not Joshua. But Joshua's going to keep you company in this cloud. And in verse 12 of chapter 24, God tells Moses that he will give to him the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so on the seventh day, Seventh day, God calls Moses up. And as Moses would ascend the mountain, the mountain of God, mountains which are synonymous with the presence of God throughout human history to this point, he will spend 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai, just him and God. Forty days, what's the significance? Oh, read the whole Bible, You'll, you'll find a couple Points where it's a pretty significant amount of time. And what does he do for 40 days? Well, 40 days, he'd be shown elaborate plans for the tabernacle. During these 40 days, he would be given immense instructions for everything related to the worship of God that would go into the tabernacle. We'll look at some of that next week. But he's there for 40 days. I, I believe that during these 40 days that, that God is somehow speaking to him, downloading to him, the entire book of Genesis and he and, and Moses is recording what God tells him which brought them up to that point beyond just oral history and tradition that was passed throughout mankind but God is giving him the details that he needs to know about the past that we read about today in the book of Genesis and, and we're assuming this entire time he's writing it all down and at the end of the 40 days Exodus 31. Verse 18, so we've got seven chapters um, from, well, 24 to 31, but seven chapters taking place here, going all the way back to Exodus 20. And 31, verse 18, it says, God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Something written with the finger of God. God's finger wrote something else in the book of Daniel written with the very finger of God. Galatians 3.19, Hebrews 2, Acts chapter 7, Deuteronomy 33 tell us a little more. It tells us that not only does God write on these tablets with his finger, but there are literally tens of thousands of angels there with Moses and God, and and somehow, The angels are the ones that actually gave these tablets to Moses because um, it doesn't tell us why, but I don't think Moses could have come into that kind of proximity with God. And so angels give him these tablets. And so I got a question for you that seems like an obvious question, but it does not have an obvious answer is what was on these tablets? I think, well, obviously the Ten Commandments. But not once does the Bible say that. It says that on these tablets were were the commands. It it was the law. And and if we read all of the passages of Scripture in context about these two tablets, it becomes clear that everything that God had told him from chapter 20 to chapter 31 that God wrote with his hand on these tablets, with his finger, and you're like, well, God must have a very small font finger. But stop for a minute. These tablets were estimated to be about four feet tall, about two and a half feet wide. There was two of them, and they were written on front and back. This is bigger than a sandwich board sign. That equals over 40 square feet of writing surface. And I was trying to figure out, like, what is 40 square feet, and the only thing that came to mind is, like, a hall bathroom. That's probably about 40 square feet. So imagine, if you will, the little tiny writing on the fingers of God, writing out about 14 chapters of Scripture on 40 square feet of surface. So from the time of God in chapter 20, giving the Ten Commandments, until the time that Moses would die as recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God would give Moses over 600 and 13 laws, 613, 613 laws. We usually just focus on 10. There's over 600 of them. I fail daily at like command number one. Think about all 600 of them. How, how are you doing at keeping these, these laws of God? And throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew and the Christian Bible These 613 laws, they would include moral laws. Don't murder people. Um, Don't have sexual relationships with with relatives. Don't don't go and and steal people from from a uh, tribe or a military that you have overtaken moral laws. Ceremonial laws regarding to worship. Make sure you clean yourself up. Take a ritual bath, a mikvah, before you go into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Make sure that when you sacrifice this lamb, this goat, um, you do it in such and such a way. Make sure that this and this and this, are ceremonial laws made specifically for the Jewish people to mediate their interactions with God and to exercise their faith to cover sin. Societal laws would be given on how to walk in justice. How to be contributing members of society if your neighbor's donkey falls in a pit that you dig, you got to pay them for the donkey. How, how to relate to each other in society. Cultural, dietary laws. Don't cut your beard this way. Don't eat shellfish. Don't wear clothes of mixed fabric. And you might say, why on earth would God give these strange cultural and dietary laws to the people of Israel, it's because the things he was having them avoid were often related to pagan things in the world around them. So today we can eat shellfish to the glory of God. We, we, we can eat clothes of, of, of spandex and cotton mixed together. These were societal, cultural, dietary laws that were to set Israel apart from the rest of the world as holy to show them that they were separate. They were other than the rest of the world. These were unique laws given to God. Uh, It's given to Israel by God. But 613 laws. I have a hard time with not sitting on the dinosaur at the Sinclair gas station. I want to stand at the edge of the cliff. I want to jump off the waterfall. But 600 of them, why, why does God give the law? if you have a Bible and you read on the screen online with you or the screen behind me, Galatians 3.19, It's written about 1400 years later Jesus has come he's, he's lived he's died he's, he's risen one of the most legalistic law keepers of all time if not all time a guy by the name of Saul finds faith and is saved by Jesus Christ and he writes this after encountering God's grace he says what's the point of the law why does God give the law why then the law he says the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Um, the offspring is Jesus, by the way. It was added because of transgression. So why was the law given? Oh, because of sin. And, and just reading it just strictly in English, like that, out of context, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, I provided a couple notes for you on the screen, and I'll just read what the ESV Study Bible says that this likely means, and, and as it would point out, if you have the study Bible, read through it, it shows all these things make sense, but number four especially is the thing. But what this means is God gave these laws to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgression. Sin requires the life of something. And until the life of the Son of God is given, you must give life for your sins. The law was given to teach people more clearly what God requires and thereby to restrain transgressions. God doesn't want you to kill your neighbor. God doesn't want you to covet your neighbor's stuff. God doesn't want you to lie in court and be a false witness. And so because of that, God's going to tell you not to do it because God is restraining sin. If we can give some rules, it will prevent people from just going all out and breaking all the rules. And number three... It's to show that transgressions or sins violated an explicit written law. The Bible says that God writes his law in our conscience, it says in Romans, our our hearts. And so everybody has some sort of a moral conscience, conscious compass, if you will. But, But God wanted to codify our conscience and say, hey, you might feel that stealing from your neighbor is wrong. You might feel that adultery is wrong. You might feel that murder is wrong. But but here's a list to show you it's actually wrong. And then number four, the law is given to reveal people's sinfulness and need for a savior. And that's the primary purpose of the law. It's to reveal our sin. It's to reveal how far we fall short of God's expectations and his glory. And so Paul goes on to write Galatians 3, 21 through 26. He says, is then the law contrary to the promises of God? If God promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed, if that promise was carried out to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon, if God promises them this, then is the promise not good enough? Why why does he give the law? Is it contrary to the promise? And Paul says, no, not at all. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So what Paul is saying is, okay, if you think you can obey the law in order to be fully righteous before God, have at it. But as you read the law, you recognize how daily, hourly, you fall short of the law, and you understand That all of your good acts before God, the scripture says, they're like filthy rags. You can never do good enough on your own. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. What that means is when you read the scriptures, when you read the 613 laws... When you see, as Gentile human beings who who were not Jews 3,000 years ago, when you read the moral law that we fall short of, when you read all of that, it's like we're in a prison because we can't do enough. And so Paul is telling us that the freedom that we need to be free from this prison of the law and this prison of sin... We must be freed by an outside source, and that is the man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who, if we would believe in him, we would receive his righteousness. He says, Now, before faith came, before faith in Jesus was revealed, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I like verse 24. He says, So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was like a, a sign that said, Hey, if you step over the rope and you fall over the waterfall and you crack your head open and die, it's your own dumb fault. It's a guardian. It doesn't mean people won't do it. If you sit on the dinosaur and you slide down his back and flip off his tail and do a couple spins and then you fall into a puddle of gas at the gas station and someone flicks a cigarette on you, you burst into flames. This is how my mind works. (laughs) That's your own dumb fault. But it's a guardian. It's telling you like, hey, this is how things work. This is the rules. The law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's not our works that will justify us because we can't do enough work. It is faith and faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so verse 25, Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to the law anymore. You're a son and a daughter of God. And what Paul is doing, and he does all throughout his writing, because slavery was such a big deal in the Roman Empire, he's saying, God doesn't want you to be a slave. He wants you to be his son and his daughter. So Jesus did come, and what did he do? He fulfilled the law. All the 613 laws in some strange way, some very obvious, some not obvious at all, were pointing to what Jesus would do. Oh, sacrifice this goat, this ram, this sheep. Sacrifice these doves in the temple in order to atone for your sin. It's pointing to Jesus, who is the only one who can atone for your sin. Clean yourself up to come before the presence of God. But I can't clean myself up enough. Yes, but Jesus cleanses you and washes you white as snow. So Jesus fulfilled the law. In fulfilling the law, Jesus also perfectly obeyed the law, and then Jesus took on our lawful, legal punishment. For us breaking the law. So he says, I fulfilled it. I obeyed it. But even though I obeyed it, I'm going to take your punishment for disobeying it. And so now as people who put our faith in Jesus, we are free of the law because we are justified through faith and not obedience. And you might say, okay, pastor, that means you are saying it's a free-for-all. Do whatever you want. Just live it up Sin all you can. Do whatever you want because now we're not slaves to the law. We don't have to obey any laws. And Paul actually asked a very brilliant question. He says, should we continue sinning more so that we get more grace? Because if we get so much grace when we sin, shouldn't we sin even more to get more grace? And he says, no, no, no. May it never be. How can you who are dead to sin Still live in it. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't enslave yourself to sin once again. So, because of this, how does a Christian respond? How does someone who is not under the prison of the law respond to the grace of God received in faith. Well, because of this, we should be thankful for the law. Thank you, God, for showing me and revealing to me that I'm a real messed up. Because if I never knew how messed up I was, I wouldn't know how much I needed you. We ought to respect the law. There are Christians who do follow the ceremonial and cultural and dietary laws of the Old Testament. And and if they feel they have to, then, then they're gravely mistaken. But if their conscience does not allow them to move away from those things, and if they want to do those things in reverence and in awe and respect to honor the law, that, that's all right. We ought to honor the law, though we are not fully under it any longer. Most importantly, because we have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and not our works, we need to obey the moral commandments of the law and the commandments given to us by Jesus himself. And a lot of times people will point to the sins, the moral sins listed in books like Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and they'll say, okay. But if you don't want us to engage in this sinful behavior, then you do need to stop eating shellfish. Then you do need to stop eating pork. Then you have to wear clothing made of only one kind of fabric. Have you heard these arguments before? They're there. They're they're the arguments that are used to destroy the moral code of Scripture that God wants us to follow. But that's where we have to know Scripture. We have to know that there are moral, ceremonial, cultural laws listed in these 613, and it is important that the Spirit of God leads us in all truth to know what things we ought to stay away from because sin leads to death. And so I can wear clothes of mixed fabric. I can eat pork, even though I don't like it, and it's not sin. But I can't murder people. I can't steal. I can't commit adultery. I can't bear false witness because those things are mocking Jesus Christ who died for the forgiveness of those sins so that I could die to them and live to him. There is a difference. Do not let culture tell you that wearing mixed fabrics and doing a plethora of moral sins are the same thing because it is not. So it's possible for us to follow these moral laws. It's possible for us to respect the law and to be thankful for the law. By the grace of God through Christ. Because through Jesus, here's what Jesus tells us happens through him. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells us that in him we are born again. Born again. Ezekiel 36, Hebrews 8, tells us that as Christians, not only are we born again, but we're actually given a new heart. And now the law, the law we've been talking about, the law is written not on tablets of stone, that our hard hearts of stone could not obey. But now the law is written on our hearts. The law is written on our hearts that have been changed, that have been made new, and that have been softened by the very Spirit of God. As a pastor, people come to me with a lot of issues, and I, and I, I love being available for issues, but I, I've learned that the issues are usually similar. Oftentimes, the issues are, I don't think I'm really saved. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my salvation. A very common one. I'm afraid I, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm afraid I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And this is the enemy trying to bring condemnation over your heart, which belongs to Jesus. And I always tell people essentially the same answer. I'm so glad that you're concerned about this. I'm so glad you are aware of that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a real thing. Because someone who is blaspheming blasphemed the Holy Spirit, someone who was not saved or on a trajectory towards salvation with Jesus would not be asking this question. You wouldn't care at all. Oh, you're, you're telling to me how convicted you are of your sin. Praise God. Well, pastor, I'm such a dirty, horrible person. But praise God, you're convicted. Because that means God is drawing you to repentance and God's forgiven you of that sin. And so we have the laws of God written on our heart. And because it is our heart's desire to please God with our mind, we exercise self-control to walk according to the ways of the Spirit and the Word of God. And when you fail, which you will, and when I fail, which I do, what do we do? We repent. We thank God for His forgiveness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we stand up and we keep following Jesus. Because following Jesus isn't a one-time decision. It is a lifelong journey to wherever he takes us that doesn't even end upon death. We'll be following Jesus for eternity. Last big verse here, Jeremiah 31. We're we're fast-forwarding from the story of the Exodus several hundred years, and we're going back in time from Galatians. The prophet Jeremiah, writing about future things, he says, Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Every time we disobey God, we we are not only rebelling against him, but, but cheating on him. For this is the covenant I will make, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this, verse 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write the law on their hearts, and I will be their God. I love this part. They will be my people. That shows up again in Revelation, verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, it's good for us to introduce people to the Lord. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying, don't tell people, know the Lord. What it's saying is, you won't be telling people, in order to know the Lord, you have to obey perfectly the law. That's what it's saying. In order to know the Lord, you have to be under the prison of the law, what it's saying is this, verse number 34. The reason is, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. So we don't run around saying, hey, did you break the law? Are you following the law? Did you break the law? Are are you wearing mixed fabric? Did you uh, covet your neighbor's stuff? No, instead we're saying, know the Lord. He loves you. He did it for you. He's forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, in fact, he remembers them no more. See, it's our hearts that matter. Jesus made clear that the law wasn't about the letter. It was about the spirit. The law was about the heart, not about strict adherence to it. And when Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Oh, Jesus, that's, that's too far. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you've ever looked at someone and called them stupid, you've already killed them. What? And Jesus does this. And he's not doing this to condemn us, but in a way he's doing it to convict us and to show us perfect adherence to the law with your flesh doesn't matter if your heart is stained. And I remove the word if, because our hearts are stained. And Jesus said, it is your heart that matters. It is not strict adherence. It's what proceeds out of the heart, defiles us. So because we have a changed heart in Jesus, when we break the commandments and thought many of you broke the commandments and thought this week? In word and in deed. We are convicted. We repent of our sin. And you and I, we can rejoice if our faith has been put in Jesus Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God. That we are recipients of God's new covenant. Not the covenant with Abraham. Not the covenant with Noah. Not the covenant with Adam. Not the covenant with Israel at Sinai. Not the covenant with David. But a new and better covenant that has been built on all the others. That all the nations, which includes us, we are now blessed through the family of Abraham, revealed through their offspring, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And the covenant that we have with Jesus Is not built upon our sacrifice. It is not built upon how we react after the flood. It is not built upon how we're a king of Israel. It is built upon the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant sealed in his blood. His blood has washed away our sins, so he forgives us our sins, our transgressions, and remembers them no more. So we rejoice. We've received the new covenant. We rejoice that Yahweh is our God, and we are his people. And just like Moses and 70 of his closest friends ate a meal with God, we can rejoice that we know him. And through Jesus, we have seen him. We didn't have to look at some, like, pavement-clear sapphire, but through Jesus, we, we, we know God. We can rejoice that he's forgiven our iniquity and remembers our sins no more. Friends, the law is important. The Ten Commandments are crucial. But there's not just ten, there are 603 more. And each and every one, it has a purpose. And it's being fulfilled. And not one of the laws is going to be stripped away completely until Christ makes all things. Jesus fulfilled it, obeyed it, and died for us breaking it. And because of that, he offers you freedom. Freedom that propels you to walk in the freedom from having to be under the law of sin. In Christ, it's not that you don't get to sin anymore. It's that you don't have to. You're not confined any longer to that. By the Spirit, he's changing. He's renewing you. He's calling you. Closer To have something even more intimate than a meal on a mountain with sapphire. But instead, have communion with God in our hearts where the Holy Spirit resides. So I ask our worship team to come up and lead us into a time of prayer and reflection. I debated spending all of our time talking about the Pharisee who asked Jesus what the most important commandment was. And I alluded to it a couple of times. And Jesus tells that Pharisee, basically, the most important is, is to love God with all that you have. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's true. But the reason I didn't spend all of our time on that is because, if you're not careful, you can interpret to what Jesus is saying is, okay, if you obey all the laws, then you're good. And the reason I say that is because the person who asked Jesus, he's like, Jesus, I've obeyed all the commandments. Which ones are the most important? And this is where Jesus tells that story the good Samaritan, to show the guy that he was far from obeying all the commandments. And so if we're not careful, we could be like the Pharisee and think, oh, I'm covered. I love God with everything I have and my neighbor as yourself. And if that's true, that's wonderful. But it doesn't negate the fact that you need the blood of the covenant washing away your sin that daily you must depend on Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, for your adherence to any law, and your righteousness in him, a righteousness that comes not through the law, but by faith. So you bow your heads and close your eyes, and just, I want to lead you in this response time. If you'd say, uh, hey, Pastor Anthony, I, I am far from obeying any law, but ultimately I just want relationship with God. I would like to be a son or a daughter of God. I would like my sins forgiven. I would like to be in relationship with him. I want his spirit living within me. I I want to have everlasting life with Jesus and serving Jesus. That's why Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, to forgive you of your sins, to restore your relationship with God, to give you the gift and the power and the presence of his spirit, to give to you everlasting life so that you could be seen as righteous before him. And that's why Jesus said, whoever believes in me won't perish, but have everlasting life. So, why scripture says, whoever calls on his name will be saved. That's why Paul himself said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You say, pastor, what must I do to be saved? And in fact, that's what thousands of people ask Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. What that means is, Friends, turn from your sin. doesn't mean you won't sin, but it means turn from your sin. And turn towards Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need Jesus. You need Christ. You need Jesus. And we'll have some people up here ready to pray for you as we sing this last song. And as you guys leave today, we'll we'll stick around and pray. But if you need Jesus today you've never surrendered your life to him, use all sorts of words, you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower, son or daughter of God, would you take care of that today? Whosoever calls on him will be saved. So would you just come, just kind of connect with us, let us pray for you. Our prayer can't save you, but but Jesus is saving you when you put faith in him, in your heart, and we just love to celebrate and walk you into that decision. And so if you'd like prayer today for that, as we pray, come up and receive prayer. Please let us know. And if you say, Pastor, I... I'm saved, I, I, I'm righteous before God, but, but, but I'm just struggling with, with following the, these moral laws that God wants me to follow. I want to please God through my actions and my heart. What should I do? Keep pushing in. Keep pushing into Jesus. Keep pushing into him. Ask for more of him. The more he fills you, the more that law that's written on your heart, it's like the bigger the font gets, the easier it is to read more desire you have to serve him. And that desire will overcome your sin. And here's what I've learned, by the way. Once the desire to please God has overridden my desire to commit a particular sin, my flesh has a way of bringing up another one to struggle with. This is a journey that doesn't end. So what do you do when that next one comes up? Oh, the more you focus on the law written on your heart, the greater your desire is to abstain from that sin. And and as the Bible alludes to, from glory to glory, from better days to better days. God changes you. He conforms you to be more like Him. It is a process, and if anybody thinks that they're done with the process, ha! You're gravely mistaken and arrogant. You and I have got a long way to go, and we're taken there by Christ. So God, we, we give you um, all the words spoken today, God. May, may the things that were read and shared according to your word Um, sit on the hearts of each of us, God, what you want us to hear. Not that we'd interpret something different, but we would know exactly what your word says and which part of it you want us to grab hold of today. God, I believe strongly that there are some people in the sound of my voice that are struggling so much with remembering their sin. Where your word tells us you remember our sin no more. So God, may we entrust to you the condemnation that we should not have and, and give it to you and if God, if you don't remember it, then would you cause us to quit going around and around in our head about it? Would you free us from that condemnation and set us free in grace to move forward? Would you give us love and compassion for others who've hurt us? Would you give us the ability to extend the grace that you've extended to us? Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?